Good morning, morning, church family. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Can we pray before we begin? Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the riches uh, of your inheritance in the saints. Father, help us to, uh, to taste and to see that you are good and help us to walk out of this place different, uh, conform to the image of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are certain seasons of the year that stir up longing and anticipation and nostalgia in us. So if I were to say uh, Memorial Day to Labor Day, well, that's summer, of course. So you can uh, smell the chlorine and the sunscreen, and you can smell the charcoal and the barbecue. But if I were to say, well, the end of August to New Year's Day, well, naturally, that's football season. You can smell the fresh-cut grass. You can hear the roar of the stadium, the clapping of pads. Everyone's filled with expectation that maybe this is the year their team makes it to the playoff. But if I say Thanksgiving to New Year's Day, right, that's the holiday season, you can um, taste the pumpkin spice lattes or the peppermint white mochas if you're like me. You can smell the turkey and the dressing, and you can see the lights on the trees. Are you full of longing and nostalgia yet? If I say first fruits and weeks, nothing. But if you were in ancient Israel, you would perhaps feel the warmth of the sun. You would perhaps uh, uh, feel the, the rustle of grain. And you would perhaps see uh, the whitening of the harvest. It was harvest season, the season between first fruits and weeks, and it would create for the people of Israel a sense of anticipation and a sense of trepidation. Uh, what's the weather going to do this year? But hopefully it would produce in the people of Israel joyful expectation and rejoicing uh, over the harvest that has come. So if you will open your Bibles uh, with me to Leviticus chapter 23, we are picking up right where we left off uh, last week. The Feast of First Fruits happens uh, right after Passover. And uh, the Feast of First Fruits also kicked off the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But before the people of Israel could eat unleavened bread, they had to present the first fruits of the grain. So let's, let's read about first fruits in Leviticus chapter 23, and we'll begin in verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all of your dwellings. 
So we have to remember that this command given to the people of Israel happens before the people of Israel are even in the promised land. They're in the middle of the wilderness, and it was a feast full of anticipation. They are expectant to go into the land and to reap the harvest, but this feast was a small offering, just one little bundle of grain given in expectation that there was a harvest that was going to follow. And for the people of Israel, it really is a countercultural feast. It's countercultural because they had just come from the land of Egypt and they were going into the land of Canaan and both of those nations uh, worshiped false gods and those gods were often tied up with the land and with harvest and with fertility and with the sun and the moon and we've already seen from Exodus chapter 32 how the people are tempted back into those types of worship. You remember the incident with the golden calf. And here is why it's countercultural, because the people of Israel, they don't find their God in the life of the farm, but their God finds them in the land of Egypt, and they are recipients of his uh, unmanipulated, loving provision of a beautiful land and a full harvest. And so the people of Israel are living into a different kind of story. All of their agriculture, all of their feasts are oriented around an event that had happened for them in the past. Deuteronomy 26 kind of gives us a little bit more information, an illustration of how the people of Israel are supposed to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. It says this, so they're there to bring their basket of grain, the little bundle, and set it in front of the altar of the Lord, and there they are going to make a proclamation. And they're supposed to say this, that that my father was a wandering Aramean, talking about Jacob. And he went down into Egypt and he sojourned there for a little while. And he went down there and he, he wasn't much. He wasn't a big people, but there he became a great and mighty and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us very harshly. They laid on us hard labor, but we cried to the Lord. And he heard our voice and saw our affliction. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And behold, he brought us into this place. And he gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first fruit of the ground to you, O Lord, because you have given it to us. And they were to set that little basket of grain down before the altar of the Lord. And they were to rejoice in all of the good that the Lord had given to them. They were to do this, the sojourner was to do this, and the Levite was to do this. And so that, that little basket of first fruits, that little bundle of grain, if it was offered in faith, expressed true allegiance to the Lord of the harvest. And since this land that the people of Israel were going into, since that was a gift itself, they were to offer the first fruits back to him. So I think that based on this Feast of First Fruits, there are two practical applications for our worship today based on the Feast of First Fruits. First, our worship must be rooted in God's history of redemption. Our worship must be rooted in God's history of redemption. 
one of the distinctive things about Israel's worship was that it was tied to history. Each feast that we've studied so far, Sabbath and Passover and first fruits, and then the Feast of Weeks in a second, they're all tied to God's work in history. The people of Israel rested on the Sabbath because God rested in creation. And they celebrated the Passover because God had rescued them out of slavery from Egypt. And they celebrated first fruits because God had given them the land and had promised it to their forefathers. And so they bring the first fruits as an offering to him. They brought the first fruits as, as stewards. And so in each feast, they are retelling the story of what God has done for them. And so in a society, for them that, that believed that life was cyclical and there was just this never-ending circle and they had to manipulate their gods to get a good harvest, Israel's worship reminded them that they were part of a different story, that they were actually going somewhere and that they were being led by a gracious and just God who doesn't change. So our worship as well must be rooted in the history of redemption. We are the recipients of the same story of the people of Israel and more. But we also live in a society that has many views about what life is about. Some people would still say that life is cyclical. And some people would say that we're the, the product of randomness and chance. But maybe the most common belief today would say that the individual is at the center of his or her own life. Your phone actually wants you to believe that you are the center of your universe. Everything that you look at is a product of your likes and your preferences and what you want to see. So we are living in this world that wants to put us at the center. But the Bible is telling us a story where God is at the center. The Bible's story actually frees us from living under the pressure of having to make everything work out so that we can have a good life. And so our worship as a church must remind us of the true story that we're living in. So we sing songs, not about ourselves, but about God and his goodness. We sing and we preach about the death and resurrection of Jesus, our Passover lamb. And we sing and we preach about our heavenly home, the new Jerusalem. We anchor our worship as a church in the history of what God has done for us. And then the second point about our worship from the Feast of First Fruits Thanksgiving, not, you know, the holiday, but like giving thanks, must be a regular aspect of our worship. Thanksgiving must be a regular aspect of our worship. So if our worship, as a church is supposed to remind us that we are not the center of our story, then a natural outflow of that should be giving thanks to the one who is in the center of that story. I don't know if this is true of you, but personally, I often find myself um, reverting or going back and just praying in accord with the things that I want or the things that I need or the things that I desire and skipping right over Thanksgiving. Or I'll catch myself sometimes even leaving church saying, man, that just didn't do much for me today. And you can see how I am subtly believing the lie that the church 
and the world and everything is about me, and it's not. So when we make thanksgiving a regular aspect of our worship, it's actually drawing us outside of ourselves. It's actually reminding us that our life is not our own. It's reminding us that God himself is the giver of all good things. And even to utter the words, thank you, is a confession that you have just relied upon somebody's kindness and help. You don't say thank you if someone hasn't done something for you or helped you. And so it's an admission that we need someone's help, we need someone's kindness. And so for the people of Israel, they brought this little bundle of grain to say thank you, Lord, for a foretaste of what is coming. The same goes for us. Thanksgiving must become a regular aspect of our worship because we too are dependent upon the Lord's provision and blessing. So that's the Feast of First Fruits, and closely connected with First Fruits is the Feast of Weeks. If First Fruits is this feast of anticipation, then the Feast of Weeks is a feast of realization. It's a feast uh, celebrating what that little bundle of grain has become. It's a celebration of what the harvest has produced because in the Feast of Weeks, the people don't bring a bundle of grain. They bring two loaves of bread, the product of those first fruits. So let's read uh, together Leviticus 23, starting in verse 15. Let's read about the Feast of Weeks. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to to the Lord." And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with the grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your generations uh, in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land. You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. So you can see how the Feast of Weeks is very closely connected with the Feast of First Fruits. After they present that uh, little bundle of grain, the people of Israel began counting. Seven full weeks or 49 days, and then on that 50th day, that is the Feast of Weeks. And on that 50th day, they bring new grain and two loaves of bread, along with a bunch of animals, 
And it's, it seems kind of confusing and complicated because it, frankly, it kind of is. But all of the additional sacrifices were purposeful. So the Feast of Weeks is the only feast, it's the only time that the people of Israel are allowed to bring bread that's been made with leaven. And the leaven is usually forbidden because it represents corruption and sometimes even sin. And so that's the reason that they needed the additional offerings. That's the reason that they needed the the sin offering, the purification offering. And then the other additional sacrifice was a peace offering. And uh, these were holy to the Lord for the priests. So you combine the bread with the lambs and it becomes kind of a full meal, so to speak. Bread and meat. And out of the abundance of the land, out of the abundance of the harvest, the Lord is caring for the poor and the priest. The last verse uh, of that passage, verse 22, is again countercultural for the people of Israel. When you reap the harvest, don't reap your field right up to the edge. Leave the corners for the poor and for the sojourner, and don't pick up the little pieces that fall as you harvest, because I am the Lord your God. So the harvest, that's what the Feast of Weeks is celebrating. The harvest was a product of the farmer's work, no doubt. But it wasn't to be considered as one's own possession because the land was a gift from the Lord. They were stewarding God's resources. And we actually see an example of of this very thing in the book of Ruth. If you think back uh, to the book of Ruth, um, there are strangers and foreigners and widows like Naomi and Ruth who are able to come and they're able to participate in the abundant harvest. And this practice, they, they called it gleaning. Gleaning is not charity, but it's a discipline. It's a decision on the part of the farmer to actually tame his power, to actually not uh, push his productivity to the max. It's a decision to limit the always present temptation to idolize our profit margins and to perpetuate systemic injustice. So the Feast of Weeks is this celebration of the harvest. It's a realization of what that little bundle of grain has become. It's become bread, the primary source of nourishment for the people of God. So I, again, see at least two practical applications from the Feast of Weeks on our worship today. First, true gratitude produces generosity. True gratitude produces generosity. The command to leave the corners unharvested informed the people of God what generosity and what genuine gratitude looked like, and it also curbed their greed. I love how one author uh, worked this principle out uh, for our modern economy, because frankly, not many of us are working fields these days, but he, he worked it out like this. This is really, I like this a lot. He says this, you might think that a diligent harvester's job is to extract the maximum amount of grain from a field, 
But instead, the discipline that the Lord required of his people was not to do everything within their power, not to push their own productivity to the limit, but to intentionally leave margins that made room for other people to participate in the economy of the community. And this raises suggestive questions about our own economy. What kind of margins should be left at the edges of modern economic markets so that the unemployed can still do meaningful work and so that the poor still have opportunities to provide for their own families rather than waiting on others' generosity? I think that is a really excellent question for Christians in the marketplace to lean into. And, and frankly, I, I wish that I could give you like a blanket answer for this, but it's really going to depend on what your work looks like. What are those places in your work that you can leave margins for meaningful work for other people? I think that's an excellent question to lean into as a Christian in the workplace. But I also think that there is an individual aspect or a, a family aspect too, that generosity might actually mean intentionally living beneath our means so that we can be generous with our abundance. True gratitude produces generosity. But here's the second point. Even our gratitude is tainted by sin. Even our gratitude is tainted by sin. One of the interesting differences with the Feast of Weeks is the leavened bread and the additional offerings. First fruits and weeks, they both have burnt offerings and they both have food and drink offerings, but the Feast of Weeks has additional offerings. And I think that's significant because I think that God knows that the heart of humanity is prone to do the right things for the wrong reasons. Our motive matters. And so they, they have this sin offering, this peace offering, and I think that if the people of Israel had actually done the right things for the right reasons, the Old Testament prophets maybe would have left them alone. But they didn't. All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are continually calling on Israel to repent for doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And so they're calling Israel to return to the Lord, not with burnt offerings and not with thousands of rams and not with 10,000 rivers of oil and not with even sacrificing your firstborn child, but with justice and with kindness and with humility because the Lord desires mercy, not sacrifice. Amos chapter five, the Lord is saying that he hates and despises the feasts. You can bring me your burnt offerings and your food offerings and your grain offerings, but I am not going to look at them because I would rather let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. So the people of Israel did the right things for the wrong reasons, and I think that we, if we're honest, are not much different. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter two helps us make sense of this for our life. He tells us, that matters of food and drink, new moons, Sabbaths, festivals, these things have an appearance of wisdom. They promote self-made religion and asceticism, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So for the people of Israel and for us, celebrating these things rightly and faithfully 
could actually become an opportunity for pride and idolatry and injustice. And I think that in our Southern Christian context, there is a very real temptation for us to think that our uh, church attendance and our Bible reading, our morality and our regular tithe earns us some kind of spiritual clout with God, and it doesn't. We should do those things, and they are good, but I find personally that sometimes even doing those things in sincerity are an opportunity for spiritual pride in my own life. And I'm betting that's probably the case all across the room. That's why the people of Israel needed the sin offering, and that's why we need Jesus. Paul tells us in Colossians 2.17 that these feasts and these festivals, the substa- the, the, these are things are shadows of things to come, but the substance of these things belong to Christ. So then how? How do these feasts point us to Christ? Let's jump back to first fruits. The feast of first fruits points us to Jesus' resurrection. The order and the timing of this feast is no coincidence Jesus' crucifixion happened on the Sabbath, uh, happened on Passover, then there was a Sabbath, and then the day after the Sabbath, on that Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the dead. That's why Paul can tell us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man death came, so by another man came the resurrection from the dead. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, and then all of us at his coming. So Jesus, his resurrection, is the fulfillment of the first fruits, just like that little bundle of grain that the people presented, just as it anticipated the harvest. So Jesus' resurrection is the hope and anticipation and expectation of a final resurrection for all of us at his coming. So Jesus fulfills the first fruits in his resurrection, but Jesus also fulfills the Feast of Weeks And what you may not know is that the Feast of Weeks goes by a different, more familiar name. So seven weeks go by after first fruits, the people of Israel are counting, and on that 50th day, the day of Pentecost, the people of Israel celebrate the harvest. They celebrate what uh, it has produced. And so the feast of Pentecost points us to what the resurrection of Jesus has produced. Acts chapter 2 tells us that when the day of Pentecost arrived, the, the disciples were all gathered in one room and there was a mighty rushing wind and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So what Christ's resurrection produced is the church. Just as the loaves of bread made with leaven are presented to the Lord, so also believers in the church, imperfect as we might be, are presented to the Lord as holy because of Christ's sacrifice and because of the cleansing of the Spirit. There are seasons throughout the year that stir up longing and anticipation for us. First fruits for the people of Israel is a expectation of the harvest, a longing for the harvest. And the Feast of Weeks is a joyful celebration of what the harvest has produced. And I wanna tell you that the church still lives between first fruits and weeks. 
We have seen the first fruits. We have seen the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and we are still anticipating the full harvest at his coming. At our death, our body is planted into the ground like a seed, and in due season, it will shoot forth with a harvest of glorious bodies from every tribe and tongue and nation and language, and they will center their worship not around ourselves, but around the throne, and they will be singing songs of gratitude and thanksgiving rooted in the history of God's redemption because of a lamb that was slain from before the foundations of the world. And on that day, all the people of God are going to say that salvation belongs to the Lord, and until that day, we, the church, move forth into fields that are white for harvest, and we compel our neighbors and sojourners and strangers to come and to join the feast. Let's pray. Father, we want to be faithful with the task that you have given to us. You have called us as a church to go forth, to go into the fields. And Father, we can only do this by the power of your spirit who propels us forward, who tells us what to say and what to speak. And Father, help us. Help us to be people who delight to give you thanks, who delight to rely on your help and your kindness to us. And help us to be people who live expectantly and hopeful for the day of your return. Father, we long to see that day and we long to be with you and like you. We pray this in your name. Amen.